Thank you. My friends, we depart for a period of time through our study of Exodus to uh, take up a special uh, sermon series during the Advent season of uh, being the body of Christ, Christ in our bodies. Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 3, verse 17, through chapter 4, verse 11. I invite you to follow along as the scripture is read. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, starting in 2 Corinthians, chapter 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, since the, through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death of Jesus for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. This is the word of the Lord. As Brian said, this is the first Sunday of Advent. We're taking a break from Exodus, which we'll return to in January, to spend some time reflecting on this theme. But pray with me now as we dive into this. God and Father, you who made us to know you and to glorify you, I pray that you might be working in us to restore both of those callings in us. Speak to us sinners as we hear from your word, and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So where is Jesus? That is a question that you hear people ask sometimes, maybe in the face of some personal tragedy or hard thing in their life. Where is Jesus? Or in the face of some big global tragedy or hard thing in the world, where is Jesus? And I think Especially that question maybe echoes for people um, in this time of year, 
Christmas, which we're looking forward to, celebrates this idea that Jesus has come into the world, that he was very God, a very God, the creator and sustainer of everything, and he became a human being with a human body and mind and soul. And that's a radical claim for us to make, but when we think about that reality that God came like that, that can especially make our hearts ache with that question. We can wonder what difference that coming of Christ makes in our lives right now. God has worked our salvation in Jesus. If you're a Christian, right, you believe that. And that is one of the things we celebrate, that Jesus, as he came as a human being and lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died and rose again for our new life, that that he worked these things in the past. And that is true. And that's the foundation of our hope. But we can tell that story in a way that still feels disconnected from our lives and our world. We can tell the story where we talk about these things in the past, and then we talk about these things in the future that were delivered from judgment, and um, our sins are covered, and we have eternal life. But we can kind of leave out this present moment between Jesus' two comings. We can um, wonder where the hope is or what difference that's supposed to make right now. And that is actually a really important question for us to ask in order to think about what it means to be a Christian. I think part of the reason so many people are comfortable saying, yeah, I'm a Christian without really thinking about that or having it make much of a difference in their lives is because they have this story that really doesn't make any difference to their lives. If it's just like, yeah, I'll say that I believe these things happened in the past and it means that I go to heaven when I die, that's like the ultimate kind of free lunch, right? Um... And that's also part of why I think many people struggle to believe Christianity in the modern world, because that story feels disconnected from the questions that they have and the things that they are wrestling with in their lives right now. And my hope this morning is to suggest that that's because we tell a kind of incomplete story when we tell the story that way. That we misunderstand what Jesus came to do because we leave out important elements that Scripture gives us. And this morning, and really over the next few weeks, I want to try to give us one of those elements that we often leave out of that story. And to do that, we need to tell a different story. Um, And we're going to do that by starting way back at the beginning of the Bible story and tracing a theme. And that theme is the theme of the image of God. The image of God. So that story in the beginning, um, God creates the heaven and the earth. I think that part is familiar to most of us. And God creates everything that is, right? The stars and sand and animals and plants and, and all of it. And he says, he looks at those things and he says they are good. And then finally he creates human beings. But we are a little different from the rest. There's an added element when he makes us. So this is what happens in Genesis 1 when God creates human beings. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created in the image of God. And again, if you've been around church much at all, or even just, you know, are kind of vaguely familiar with Christianity, you've heard that. 
Um, but the problem is, I don't think we do a good job of saying what that means. What do you think that means that we're created in the image of God? Most people, I think instinctively when they try to answer that question, what they say is, well, this means we're different from the animals, which is true. We are different from the other parts of creation. And so then they just say, okay, so what makes us different from the animals? And they start coming up with this stuff. Maybe it's our ability to be rational, to think about things in a certain way or invent stuff. Or maybe it's our ability um, to be creative or to use language. Or maybe it's some capacity we have to worship God. Those are all different things that people will suggest sometimes. But those are all about some ability that we have, right? That, those are all saying, this is some capability I have that's different from animals, and that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And there are two problems with that. One is that it gets really tricky around the edges, for instance, if God's image has to do with some ability we have, does that mean that people who have less of that ability are less in the image of God? What about infants or the disabled? Um, or frankly, to put it another way, like the most popular way of answering this question from a lot of theologians in church history was to make it about rationality and intelligence and I don't know that that's really surprising that it's the smartest, most intelligent people that say this is the thing that really makes us in the image of God, which might sound unfair. But all of that highlights a problem, which is that if the image of God is about some ability we have that makes us different from the animals, then it can easily become a cause for pride and feed into our sinful desire to be like God. So that's one issue. And then the second issue with that answer to what does it mean to be made in the image of God is that none of that comes from the Bible. Nowhere does the Bible list any of those things as explanations for what it means to be made in God's image. Instead, if we pay attention to this text, we get a different answer. So if you look back at what we read there from Genesis 1, God says, let's make man in our image and our likeness. And then what does he immediately say after that? He says, let them have dominion. And then he lists all of the different things that he's just gotten done creating. Let them have authority and rule over the rest of creation. And if we're looking for what the Bible seems to indicate it means to be made in God's image, that's, that's it. That we are given this authority by God to rule over the world. But importantly, it is not saying that we have some sort of authority apart from God, right? God has dominion. That's why we're made in his image in a sense, right? If, is that he gives us that dominion. But so our authority is meant to be an authority that serves God. Um, it, bearing God's image means like being his lieutenants or his ambassadors, right? That it's like the CEO has, of a company, the guy who owns the place has authority, and then he chooses these managers and people under him and gives them some of that authority to rule over parts of it. That's actually really similar to how Genesis describes Adam's job. If you look in Genesis 2, it says that the Lord God took Adam, the man, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, right? So God says, okay, like I've made this thing and now I'm putting you in this place to work and oversee and take care of this. Or to put it another way, to get at that same idea another way, when it says we bear God's image, Who's supposed to be looking at us and seeing it? That's another way to ask the question. 
our tendency is, I think, just to say God, that God's supposed to look at us and say, oh yeah, that reminds me of me that you're made in my image. And that's not exactly untrue. But I think more than that, in Scripture, what's supposed to be looking at us is the rest of creation, that the world is supposed to look to us and say, this is, what a pic- this is the picture, right, of God and his rule, that we stand in as his representatives, that we, in a sense, should be able to look at each other and say, oh, like, you know, these people, what's God like? Well, I can see it in these people. That's how this thing started. That's what human beings are created for, to bear the image of God. And like we said, right, that's a job that describes a purpose and power that we have in the world. And then human beings rebel against that purpose. That's probably not surprising to you either if you've been in church. But um, things go wrong. And really, in many ways, the root of that sin is also about refusing to bear God's image rightly. The root of the temptation of Adam and Eve is about, you know, you don't have to do what God says. You can become like gods yourselves. You can stop imaging God and instead be an image of yourself. And because of that, the world ends up broken and we end up in rebellion. So what does that mean then for the image of God, right? If that's the beginning of things, do we still bear God's image? And the biblical answer to that is yes, but also no. (laughs) Um... Yes, we still bear God's image in two senses in the Bible. First, in the sense that we are valuable, that just because we're created in God's image, we still have a sort of value and dignity. So, for example, after the fall and rebellion in Genesis 9, when God makes a covenant with Noah, um, and he's talking about how murder is forbidden, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Right? So this is after human rebellion still, We are made in the image of God, meaning that it is wrong to take some other human being's life. And more than that, we also still bear God's image in the sense that we have that position of power and dominion in the world. We still have that kind of authority in the world. Like, like there are lots of problems in the world, right? There are problems with society and problems with the environment and all kinds of problems. And people like to argue about who to blame for those problems, But you know who they don't blame is sharks, right? Sharks are really scary, and they're like apex predators, but no one thinks the big global problems of the world are their fault. Or like termites or, you know, or trees or whatever, right? And that's because we all recognize that we still have this enormous power in the world that nothing else in creation has. We still have dominion, and in that sense, bear God's image, But we do not bear God's image anymore in the sense that we do not use that dominion in a way that shows forth God's goodness and glory. That we do not show forth to the world who God is through our lives. We behave in ways that are selfish and arrogant and foolish and cruel. And so now you can't look at humanity. You you cannot (laughs) never look at humanity and say, what is God like? And use our current state as a good indication of that. So that's the background. That is act one of the story, all right? The the image of God. And then we need to talk about Jesus to see how the Bible develops that story. When Jesus comes, um, he is coming to address, in part, that problem we have with the image of God being broken. One of the themes of the way the New Testament discusses Jesus is as the image of God. So, for instance, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. You can also translate it, the exact representation or image of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the image of God, and notice it even links that to the idea of dominion, right? Jesus rules by his power over the universe. This, from the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians, he says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And again, if you go on in Colossians 1 there, the next few verses are about his rule and dominion. Or one more example from Paul's letter of sec- in, to the Corinthians that we read this morning. He talks about how unbelief can blind us, but then this is what he says happens in that blindness. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So notice again, Christ is the image of God, and what's supposed to happen there is we're supposed to be able to look at him and see the glory of God, right? Just like in that original story, except that unbelief and sin blinds us. So Jesus is the image of God, and the New Testament says Jesus' purpose, one of his purposes, is to restore God's image in us. So for example, in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul discusses Jesus as this second Adam. Um, He's saying there was this first Adam, and in his rebellion we have this humanity in rebellion, and now Jesus comes as this second Adam. And here's how he sums it up. He says, for if... By the trespass of one man, that first Adam, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of life and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So notice that through Jesus we're being given this new life and it's dominion again, right? We will reign in righteousness in life um, because of the work of Jesus. We're being restored by Jesus to that place we lost because of Adam's sin. Christianity, then, is not primarily just a story about the past and the future, but about something that's meant to be happening in the present. We are supposed to be having this new way of living, or this really restored way of living, where we're showing forth God's image. Let me just show you a few other places in the New Testament to talk that way, to help drive that home. First, again, from 2 Corinthians Paul says that we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are seeing the glory of the Lord as we see Christ and the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about in the context there. And, um, and that transforms us more and more into the image of God. Or in Romans 8, when Paul's discussing God's great work of salvation, He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestined means that God chose, chose in himself before the foundation of the world, but he didn't just choose like, I'm gonna just like save this person, but his choice was to seek people who would be conformed to the image of his son. Also notice that now he's using that to stand in for the image of God, right? That the image of Jesus now, because he is that perfect representation of God, is the image of God. And one more. From Colossians 3, Paul talks about this idea that we have a new self. And he describes our new self like this. He says, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
So God is at work renewing us as we become Christians in the image of God. That's the story, all right? That is that biblical theme of the story, um, that we were made in God's image, we lose it um, in the fall, at least in part, and Jesus is at work in us restoring it. And in just a minute, I want to talk about some specific ways that that changes then how we think about our lives, about why that story matters. But first, I want to just note a kind of side note from that story that I also think is important. And to get at that, let me give a statement, and we're going to unpack this more in a couple minutes, but one of the big ideas, I think, that we need to understand is that Christianity is about the best way to be a human being. The claim of Christianity is that it is the best way to be a human being. And we're going to talk about that best way part in just a minute, because that's the transformed part. But another important implication of this story is that it means that we are supposed to be human beings, (laughs) that Christianity is not opposed to our humanity. I think that a lot of Christians talk in this way where they view it like it is. They talk as if they're sort of spiritual things, and then there is worldly stuff, and worldly stuff means everything that's not explicitly religious, right? It means eating and drinking and working and sleeping and being a human being. And often you get the impression, the way that Christians talk, that those worldly things are a problem, (laughs) And that leads to a lot of discouragement, I think, for Christians, because all of us, right, even I'm a pastor, and I spend more of my time doing those worldly things, right, than spiritual stuff. And anyone that, you know, that's ever had to, you know, go to work and, you know, and do that knows that struggle. And the thing is, that just, that whole way of framing it is untrue. And this story is a really good example of why that is untrue. So God creates Adam right? And he says, Adam, you are going to bear my image and show forth my glory to the world, and creation is going to know me through you. And how does Adam do that? He does it by working a garden and loving his wife and eventually creating a family and presumably eating and sleeping by being a human being. He's showing forth God's image. What Jesus is coming to do is to restore, in a sense, that humanity to us. Or think about it this way, right? Jesus, it says, is the exact imprint of God's nature, right? He's, you know, he's the the glory of the invisible God. He is the perfect image of God. Um, But Jesus is a human being too, right? I mean, in the first place, I mean, we, we read about his ministry in the Gospels, but he spent 30 years before that as a carpenter, right? And before that as a kid. And he was just as much the glory of the invisible God and the exact imprint of God's nature in those times as he was after he started his ministry. And even still, right, he was a human being who had to, you know, eat and sleep and live as a human. Jesus was human. We're supposed to be human. Um, when the world looks at Christians, they, shouldn't, they should be like, oh yeah, there's something I understand about that, something that's familiar, That's not the problem. We are, though, supposed to also be different, right? And that's the second side of this, that um, we're called to be human beings, but we also said that Christianity claims to be the best way to be human. And that brings us to kind of how we apply this story to ourselves, which is to say that we're called to show forth God's image in our humanity. We're called to show forth God's image. 
And this is where I want to turn in particular to our scripture reading from this morning. Because it joins together two different pictures that both help us get at that idea. The first picture is of light. God's glory is often pictured in the Bible as light. And that who he is, his goodness and his power and his wisdom just shine and show out of him. And um, we read it already, but if you look in verse 18 of chapter 3 from our reading in 2 Corinthians, it says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we behold God's glory, the light shines into us, and then we're transformed into that glory. The light starts to shine out of us. Paul uses the same imagery of light in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So again, God's light shines into our hearts, and as a consequence, we're supposed to shine that light out to the world. There's actually something especially striking there. You'll notice it makes this connection between creation and what's happening to us. So it says, God said, let light shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1. He creates the light in the darkness. And then he's also causing this light to shine in us. Scripture describes us as new creations. That's actually a little lighter in this letter. Paul uses that. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So this is saying that as God shines his light into us somehow, that's almost a a work of recreation, right? We're being remade again in God's image. Um, And then in addition to light, Paul uses the image of Christ's life. In verse 7, he starts to reflect on the struggles of the Christians in Corinth and the struggles that he has in his ministry. And he says, first, we have this treasure, and he means the glory of God and that light of the gospel, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, which is to say that all of that stuff is true that he just said, even though we're all so weak and frail and imperfect, that we are easily broken jars, but God's glory is still shining. And then he talks in verse 8 and 9 about all these struggles and persecutions. And then in verse 10, he summarizes that idea this way. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed in our body. So somehow as Christians, we are dying um, in a way that is joined to the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus can be revealed. And then he expands that in verse 11. He says, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. When Paul talks about being given over to death, he does not just mean like literally that we're dying necessarily, but he means um, in the first place all of the suffering and struggle that he's just listed, and he means even more than that just the reality of dying to ourselves. That, That part of Christianity is being human, but it's being a new kind of human, and so that as we die to our old humanity and live more and more into that new humanity, we're showing forth that humanity to the world. There's one more layer I want to add to that idea in just a minute, but let's pause there because that lets us come back to what we said a couple minutes ago and really grasp the other side of it. 
So we said that Christianity is meant to be the best way to be a human being in a way that is both familiar to people, like we said, but also in a way that's challenging to people. And that means that every part of our lives is meant to be lived into and done in such a way that what we're talking about here is shown forth, right? That people are able to look at every part of our lives and recognize that there's something different because that light is shining out of us, because we have this new life that is Christ in us. And that doesn't mean necessarily something dramatic, but it does mean something real. You think about, like, the way that we think about work. Um, When we work in Scripture, we're not just doing it to get a paycheck, although that's great. We're not just doing it to find self-fulfillment, although if you find that, that's good. We're not doing it to stoke our egos, which you shouldn't be doing. But work in Scripture is ultimately done because it's serving God. So Paul says in Colossians, he says, Whatever you do, work with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Which is to say, on the one hand, that like work is good and part of our humanity, right? You don't want to fall into this trap where you view work as somehow a problem because it's not spiritual. But that the, we're supposed to work in a way that is for the Lord and not for other human beings. So like, so you imagine, like I remember, I'm about to tell a story where I did something right. Just to be clear, oftentimes I did not have a good attitude, like I'm about to, but, but I remember working as a manager in retail for years, and um, there were lots of days that were rough and frustrating, and um, Sometimes I gave into that, but sometimes as I had that idea in my head, right, I would say, okay, I'm working for the Lord. That, that needs to inform the way I choose to work today. Um, and I remember once there was this kind of train wreck of a day, but I had, like, that was there, and that was one of those maybe rare days where I was doing that. And, um, and I remember, you know, I, so I'm working really hard, and everyone else is standing around, and I remember a guy just being like, Eric, what are you doing? Like, you can, you know, you don't have to do that. And my response was, I know, man, but I'm working for Jesus. And, and he looked at me like I was from another planet, right? But that's kind of the point, right? On the one hand, there's something familiar about work. On the other hand, the whole way we do it is meant to be changed, because suddenly we're doing it for God's glory and to show forth Christ's goodness. And again, the point, the point is not that I was always good at that, again. And the point in there is certainly not that, that we have to do that perfectly, but it's that the more that we do that, and I don't just mean in work, I mean in every part of life, right? The more that we live that way, the more powerfully Christ actually gets shown to the world. So we are called to show forth God's image, Show forth the image of Christ in a way that is familiar and human, but also different and transformed. And then there's one more level I want to add to that. And it really, I think, is tied in Scripture to this theme of bearing God's image. But to get there, we need to go back to the question I asked at the very beginning of the sermon, which is, where is Jesus right now? So in one sense, the answer to that question is that Jesus is in heaven, that Jesus rose from the dead, physically ascended into heaven, that somehow, we can have a conversation about this sometime if you want, his resurrected body is, you know, is in heaven right now, and he's ruling and interceding before the Father. In one sense, Jesus is in heaven, right? But um, in one sense, in another sense, he is still in the world, in Scripture, 
And that is because scripture would say that Jesus is us. So the Bible talks about this idea that we, together as the church, are the body of Christ. You guys have heard that if you've been around the church probably. Um, And what you've probably heard is one of the two ways the Bible uses that idea. Um, One of the ways the Bible uses it is is to stress that we should be united to each other like a body right? That's the familiar one. And that's true. That's good. Don't, don't hear me criticize that at all. We are different with different gifts and, you know, and callings, but we need to appreciate each other the way, like, you know, my hand can't be like, well, you know, mouth, like, you're no hand, so I guess you're not really that great, are you? Um, so we should be united to each other because we're Christ's body. But it also uses it in another way. Um, so take this. This is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He says, and God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So God the Father puts Jesus as the head and the church is his body and somehow the church is the fullness of Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, Basically, it means this. So Jesus is, on one level, spiritually present everywhere, right? That's why it says that Jesus fills all in all at the end of the verse. But Jesus is only physically present right now in heaven. And our purpose as the church and as Christians is to be his body, the fullness of that physical presence here on earth, which is to say that we are how Jesus is physically present in this particular piece of creation. And that is one of those ideas we need to stress because it's easy to say but easy to miss how profound it is. So let me try to put it like this. First of all, this means that as we go about our lives, the question we should be asking is not so much just um, how does Jesus want me to act, but the question we should be asking is if Jesus was in the world, what would he be doing in this situation, right? If this was a story in the Gospels, what would Jesus be doing in this moment? Whose side would he be on? What would he be saying? What would his priorities be? We're supposed to imagine that Jesus is there, And then we're supposed to say, cool, we're Jesus, and we're supposed to do that. Now, of course, some of what Jesus did on earth, right, is not as directly accessible to us. When we say that Jesus was God incarnate, and he had a sort of direct power that we don't have, right? When it's raining, I can't just walk outside and be like, be still, you know, and the storm stops the way Jesus did. But a lot of what he did, we still can very much do, Um, in terms of attitudes and actions and words. And even those supernatural things, we can pray to the Lord that he would provide and work in those ways. But so when someone is hurting, we should say, well, if Jesus was here, what would he be doing? And well, he would be with that person and he would show them compassion and he would seek to help them and speak love to them. And so it is our job when we see someone hurting to be Jesus to those people. If someone is lost in sin. If Jesus was here, what would he be doing? Well, he would be pursuing them. He would be eating and drinking and sharing life with them, and he would be speaking to them in a way that is both gracious but also challenging, calling them to turn from that sin. If someone is an enemy who's trying to do us harm, if Jesus is here, what would he be doing? Well, he would be loving them and seeking to repay their evil with good and laying down their life, his life for their salvation. So we should do that, too. 
And importantly, when I say all of that, I am not just saying that we should take Jesus as our example. All right? That is a part of it. But, like, I remember when I was a kid growing up in the, the early 90s, there was this, like, what would Jesus do thing, right? With bracelets. And, and that's a good question, right? It's a much better question than not asking it. But I'm not just saying, like, Jesus did this stuff and we should imitate him and do that stuff. What, what I'm saying scripture says is that when you do that, when you are Jesus in the world, Jesus is actually there. That he is moving through our bodies and acting through our hands and speaking through our words. And when we meet someone in that way, when we are imaging God to them, they are actually seeing and encountering God through us. It's not just that we look like Jesus when we do that. Rather, it's that the Holy Spirit indwells us and Jesus moves through our bodies so that we are the fullness of his actual presence. And that means that all the stuff we said about trying to be new human beings, that is something that has power. Part of why we ask that question, where is Jesus, when we face something hard or some tragedy in the world, is because we have this sense that if only Jesus was here, things would be better, right? He could fix these things, that he would move in his power and in his presence and bring hope and heal and make things right. And there is a sense in which that is true and has to wait his return, right? The ultimate restoration of the world awaits Jesus' physical return back to earth. Until then, there's always going to be sin and brokenness. But it is also true that when we as Christians move in ways that image Christ in the world, that kind of powerful presence is here. And so that means that we do have real hope for healing and change and good to be worked in the world because Jesus is present in our lives. So that is the big idea that's going to shape our Advent series, that Jesus Christ is meant to be in and working through our bodies to show forth God's image and move in the world. And um, the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time looking at a few specific examples of the ways that Scripture talks about that. We're going to be talking about the idea that we are meant to be Christ's hands, especially in terms of helping the poor. We are meant to be Christ's mouth, particularly in terms of speaking the hope of the gospel to the lost, and that we are called to be Christ's feet, particularly in the sense of going and being present with the least and lowliest and most hurting people in the world. We're going to explore the way that those themes connect with this over the next few weeks. But for this morning, I want us to just imagine and have our imagination shaped by that picture. If Jesus was here, what would he be doing, right? Imagining that and then doing that because we recognize that as we are, Jesus is actually here. Um, The best way to wrap up, you heard the choir sing this morning this quote attributed to St. Teresa of Avila, who was this medieval saint. Um, And here is the quote. She says, Christ has no body on earth now but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. That is our calling, to be more and more restored, to bear God's image and be God's hands and feet as we move in the world.
Would you pray with me? Father, I just pray that you would be at work doing this in our midst and in our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the many ways that you forgive us in our failure to do this and pray that we might have a vision of the, just the goodness and the power of what it means to bear your image, to be the image of Christ to the world. Pray these things in his name. Amen. Friends, we have the joy this morning of coming to the Lord's table. As we do, we join with the words of saints for the last 2,000 years as they profess their hope in the work of God in Jesus Christ. So the Apostles' Creed, which is printed in your bulletin, please join me with those words. I believe in God, the Father. Friends, as we come to the table, in so many ways, the table speaks to me of exactly the reality that that is our hope, which is that God is moving in the ordinary, physical, like everyday things of our humanity to work in a way that speaks of his hope um, and that can work powerfully as he speaks through it. Uh, These are ordinary elements. There is no magic that happens at the table. This is bread, and this is juice, the the fruit of the vine, and, um, and they are ordinary things, but because the Holy Spirit indwells us, and the Lord moves in us, and we are in Jesus Christ, we truly are partakers of Jesus Christ as we come to this table. He meets us as our host and as our Savior. In the same way, this is meant to work and nourish in us that sort of change. That as we physically taste this bread and drink of this cup, we are to recognize that that we are being called to spiritually partake of Christ in a way that starts to show him forth. That as the light of his love shines into us, so we are called to shine it forth to the world. I would invite the elders to come forward now, and we will prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. Friends, as I received it, so I deliver it to you. Then on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, broken for you. God and Father, we give you thanks that you would send your Son, Jesus Christ, as a human being, that you would suffer and die for our salvation, and that you would be at work in us, that as we are joined with that death, that we are also showing forth Christ's life. Pray that you would be with us now. A few practical instructions as we prepare to partake. This table doesn't belong to Kish. It doesn't belong to some denomination. This is Jesus' table. If you belong to Jesus, then he offers it to you and calls you to partake of it. 
if that is not a place you're at, if all of this discussion about Christ, you know, being, remaking us in new humanity and new selves, if that's all a foreign country to you, um, I would invite you, first of all, to spend some time reflecting on it during this time, to ask whether maybe that could be true. Um, And then I would ask you not to partake of this table, simply because this would be acting out something with your hands that you don't believe in your heart, and that puts you in a place of hypocrisy and inconsistency, and that's not healthy for you. But I would invite you, along with all of us, to reflect on the work of Jesus Christ that this table calls us to remember and hope in, because that is a hope that I'd invite you into as well. We will now receive the bread and to partake of it as we are one body in Jesus Christ. Christ's body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, after the meal, our Lord took the cup, and after giving thanks, he blessed it and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God and Father, we give you thanks for the love that you showed us, the blood that you poured out the life that you gave that our lives might be restored. 
We pray that we might hope in this work as we seek to live into that new creation. Amen. We will likewise receive the cup together and partake as one as we all together partake of the Lord Jesus Christ. blood of Christ shed for you. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You'd stand with me now, and it's Advent, which means we get to start singing some familiar Christmas songs. So let's close by singing to the Lord. <laughs> 